Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Richard Quest, and this is what you need to know as Thursday is well and truly underway. There's a new Hong Kong law. China has approved the crackdown. The U.S. is calling it a disaster and a fundamental reappraisal now underway of relations between the United States and Hong Kong. Violent protests in the United States in Minneapolis over the death of a man who was being restrained by the police. We'll have all the details on that for you. And more layoffs. Unemployment in the United States continues to rise. It's now over 40 million. We have the latest jobless numbers and Christine Romans will help us understand what they mean. It is Thursday and this is First Move. And a very warm welcome to you to First Move. I'm Richard Quest. Julia is off this week. She'll be back at the helm next week. So the number of people who've died from coronavirus has now reached more than 100,000. And that's taking its toll on the markets as well in the business world as people look at the reopening. 2.1 million more Americans filed jobless claims last week. It takes a total number to more than 40 million uh, since the lockdowns uh, and the big began. Now, 2.1 million is considerably less than we saw at the height, but that is cruel and cold comfort. Uh, it's encouraging, but we mustn't overstate it. The futures are showing a mixed open. There are gains for the blue chips. Now, bearing in mind we're over 25,000, the blue chips have been on a tear for the last few days. One would be perfectly entitled to say that they'll take a breather. But tech remains under pressure, so you've got the blue chips and the broader up, and tech is down. And the reason for that is Donald Trump's threatening social media, and there will be an executive order we'll discuss in just a moment. Twitter's off 4% pre-market. Europe was higher. DAX is up for the fifth straight month. The idea is that the recovery plan boosts European economies. They buy more German goods. Germany improves. You get the way the picture runs. Look at, look at Asia. Japan was up 2%. The reopening is moving forward there. However, Hong Kong and the Hang Seng, well, I'm only surprised it's holding on as much as it is, frankly, down just three quarters of 1%, bearing in mind that as we get to our drivers, it is Hong Kong and China that is right at the top. China has pushed forward now with the national security law that has provoked such anger, angst and unrest in Hong Kong. A new wave has taken place. The Secretary of State, the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has dismissed and denounced the move, calling it disastrous. David Culver is our correspondent in China. He joins me from Beijing. <clears throat> we'll get to the interpretation in a moment, uh, David. But first, the actual passage of the law. Has the Chinese uh, Congress passed this law and is it now in force? All right, so they have passed it. 
so as to begin the legislative process, Richard. It's not surprising when they propose something. It's a rubber stamp legislature. So, of course, they're going to go through ultimately with passing it. And it was overwhelmingly done so with some 3,000 delegates. But what's happening now is it's the standing committee that over the next two months or so will come out with some of the specifics as to what this will mean for the folks not only in Hong Kong, but ultimately those who do business with Hong Kong, as you mentioned, the U.S. being a huge part of that. Related to this, though, is now, of course, what the U.S. is going to do about it. And the comments from Mike Pompeo saying that it's disastrous, but the actions likely to be taken to say that the U.S. no longer regards Hong Kong as autonomous. What is the significance of that? And will it worry China? Well, yeah, that, that's crucial. I mean, the autonomy that Hong Kong has enjoyed uh, is, is if that's threatened, then going along with it would be the special trading status that it has, essentially uh, keeping tariffs at, at little to nothing, certainly for American exports in particular. The other part of that could mean that the U.S. would move forward with sanctions against China uh, and, and perhaps some of the tariffs that were solved over phase one back in mid-January will make a return. They're even talking about uh, forcing certain Chinese officials to have to undergo visas. I mean, all of this is because they fear that the autonomy that uh, Hong Kong currently has is going to be essentially eliminated altogether. And China's side of this is saying, no, this is about safeguarding national security. I want to show you on your screen, if you, if you see this, the breakdown as Beijing has portrayed this, because this is how they're putting it out and the narrative is being constructed here in mainland. And that is maintaining and improving one country, two systems. They say this is preserving the rule of law. This is opposing foreign interference. Clearly, they're pointing at the U.S. in particular and that it's protecting Hong Kong residents' legitimate rights. The concern, though, is that this autonomy that they have enjoyed will be wiped out altogether and that it perhaps could become more like folks here in mainland are experiencing. And, and particularly with freedom of, of speech and press, that's right. something that's also of concern. And as I look over my shoulder, I mean, some of this has been censored out as you and I have been talking. David Carver, that last point is extremely interesting and, and serious and we'll talk more about it as we do that every time you say something every time we cover something here on cnn that the chinese government doesn't like they simply turn off the switch david culver in uh, in uh, beijing uh, sir thank you it will be interesting to see if and when they decide to turn it back on again they might do when they hear the numbers from the united states economic numbers from the u.s 2.1 million more Americans have now filed for unemployment. Christine Romans is with me, our chief business correspondent. So, um, it is cruel and cold comfort that the number is going down, uh, because when you look at the 40 million, but Christine, I'm more interested to some extent in this number of how many of those people regard themselves as long-term unemployed or expect to go back to their place of work. You know, and here's the thing. How temporary is this? And how do people feel? What kind of confidence do they have uh, that they're going to go back and get a job? Something that augments that is the $600 a week extra that taxpayers are giving them that many economists hope will relieve the damage that numbers like these are doing to consumer confidence and to employ employee confidence. But look, 2.1 million, I mean, we can look and try to find little statistics here and there that make it seem a little bit better. Continuing claims, for example, came down by a few million, and I was happy about that for a second. And then I just had to think, wait a minute, 40 million people 
have lost their jobs in 10 weeks, either furloughed, temporarily off the job, or permanent layoffs. And when you think about who was working, Richard, at the beginning of March, think about the American labor market at the beginning of March. A quarter of those people are not working today. So that's what's really kind of the, the, the context, I think, here overall. You're right to point out that these numbers have been declining from what have been just epic multi, multi-million levels. But before this, we'd never even seen a million claims, you know, and not even in those days after World War II when, you know, Japan surrendered right. and all of a sudden the big industrial machine in the United States stopped. So uh, this is just such a unique no-playbook period. It's hard to draw conclusions about where the turnaround right. comes when you've got just such a big volume of numbers, I think. Exactly. And that's the problem, Christine. That's exactly the problem. Any form of prognostication of what comes next is at best guesswork and at worst just I think it's going to be one way or the other. I think it's so interesting because when you talk to corporate executives, there have been a couple of really interesting surveys of corporate executives who see a quick recovery. I mean, J- Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan said mm. there's fairly good odds that you're going to see a, a brisk recovery starting at the end of, of this year. The stock market clearly is looking ahead to a recovery in, in 2021. There was a survey that our Matt Egan wrote about today about corporate executives really, really think there's going to be a V-shaped strong recovery. So then you talk to central bankers and they say, you know, markets don't understand this virus. We haven't gone through this before in a modern economy. There's an awful lot of risk still out there. So we'll see if people start to get hired back and in what capacity. I hope that that turn comes. But for right now, we are still in the thick of the kind of layoffs we've never seen before. Christine, thank you. Christine Romans, our chief business correspondent. I appreciate it. Thank you. Donald Trump says he will issue an executive order uh, uh, concerning Twitter and social media. Donia Sullivan is our correspondent covering that for us uh, this morning. Donia, we've got an idea of what this might be. What is it? Yeah, that's right, Richard. Our colleague Brian Fung here at CNN has seen a draft of that executive order. And Trump is really uh, coming after a law called the Communications Decency Act. It was signed in 1996, uh, specifically Section 230 of that, which is uh, the the section was signed in in, in 96, I I should say, uh, which basically protects these social media companies from lawsuits, from really having them to take responsibility for what is on their platform. So, uh, you know, were the likes of Facebook and Twitter really responsible for what what their users were posting, their billions of users were posting? It, of course, could be a lot more expensive to run that platform because they'd have to have a lot more humans moderating it. So this could actually, you know, cause a great cost to these uh, companies. Now, when you get into the details, like, you know, some Trump executive orders in the past, it's difficult to see if this, you know, will actually make it across the finish line into uh, action. Um, There's Congress would need to be involved. There's all various different agencies, the FCC here in the U.S. So the the details, once once you get into detail, it starts to cloud up a bit. But this is, of course, Trump um, trying to, I guess, get back at the companies. Um, He he and many conservatives here in the U.S. uh, believe that Silicon Valley has a anti-conservative bias. And one other thing I think that was interesting in the draft uh, memo that uh, the draft executive order that CNN obtained, um, the executive order also faults Google 
for helping the Chinese government surveil its citizens, Twitter for spreading Chinese propaganda, and Facebook for profiting from uh, Chinese advertising. So you can see where the Trump administration's mind is at with all those mentions of China as well. All right, but this section that we're talking about, Section 230, while you were talking, I just called it up. This, it's, it's, it's called uh, the 26 words that created the Internet. It's no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. In other words, they are not liable for what somebody else says. So my guess is that the plan is to somehow negate that section. Yes, and I mean, you think about what Trump is trying to achieve here and what uh, his allies are complaining about Silicon Valley. They're saying that, they're claiming that Silicon Valley, Facebook and Twitter censors too much. But if you make these platforms liable for anything that's posted uh, on their services, then they're probably actually going to start moderating and, and as Trump would call it, censoring uh, even more content. So it's it's difficult to see if understand how this actually this executive order might achieve um, the, the the president's objectives here. But I mean, I really right. think what we're getting into here is a is a, a debate that's past you about uh, freedom of speech on the internet and how these massive platforms are are policing um, their services. Thank you, Daniel Sullivan. Thank you. Now, one other story making news around the world and that we need to bring to your attention this morning. There's been a, a night of unrest in Minneapolis in uh, the U.S. Midwest as protesters are clashing with police for a successive night. If you look at the pictures, uh, you can get an idea uh, uh, of the situation. The uh, overnight unrest followed, of course, the police and activity. Demonstrators were responsible for the de demonstrations were in response to the death of George Floyd, an American, African-American who died after police officers kneeled on his neck on Monday. CNN's Omar Himariz has this report that contains upsetting and graphic video of the arrest. For a second night in a row. Tonight was a different night of protesting than it was just the night before. Minnesotans take to the streets over the death of one of their own, George Floyd. The protests turning dangerous overnight, fires burning on the streets. Local firefighters rush to extinguish this billowing fire at an auto zone. Flashbangs and fireworks rang out on the streets well into the night. Some taking advantage of the unrest, looting a local target and clashing in the streets with police. Emblematic of a pain felt in this community and beyond, over how in just a matter of minutes, the 46-year-old father of two went from pleading for help to what eventually became an eternal silence. Like, I'm going to give my man safe this. I can't breathe. I want my mama. And I'm coming to find out that this man who died two years on the day that his mom died. I'm a mama's boy, bro. It's like, that hurts me deep down inside, bro. And like, something needs to be done or something needs to be done. <laughs> Williams says none of the officers responded to his pleas to let up at the scene. The mayor of Minneapolis is now calling for charges to be filed. I've been asking myself that core underlying question, why is the officer that, that killed George Floyd uh, not 
in jail right now? And I can't answer that question. Newly released records from the Minneapolis Fire Department show when medics got to the scene, they were working on a, quote, unresponsive, pulseless male. Floyd was declared dead later on at a nearby hospital. The circumstances that led to the encounter is among what investigators are trying to understand, including at the FBI and the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. All of it circling the question of whether the four officers involved will face more than just being fired. Criminal charges. That includes Officer Derek Chauvin, the man seen on video restraining Floyd with his knee, according to his attorney. The Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis says the officers are cooperating with the investigation. The Floyd family wants murder charges to be filed. It hurts me that I am crying on TV, another we are, another black family going through this nonsense. And within the community, a pain persists. As a black community, as America, we are family. We've got to make a change, bro. Omar's with me now from Minneapolis. Omar, watching the pictures, listening to your report, where's this going? What happens next? Well, right now, Richard, protesters, the mayor and the family are trying to see if these officers will now face criminal charges as they have already been fired, which happened within 24 hours of this happening. And we see the tension playing out in actions. This used to be an auto shop here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And in just a matter of hours, it was lit on fire. It was likely looted beforehand and now burned essentially to the ground. We are standing essentially in what has been the flashpoint for protesters here. Location-wise, it is right across the street from the Minneapolis police precinct here, where, again, the protesters have been funneling. Their central message is part of what I mentioned before. It centers around not only how George Floyd died, which we have seen in that harrowing cell phone video, but also how his death is now being handled. They want more to be done outside of just these firings. We are still waiting to see if the FBI and the state investigators here recommend charges to the county Bye. attorney's office and the U.S. attorney's office for these officers. But only time will tell and tension remains, Richard. Thank you, Omar, there in Minneapolis. And if you want to really get an idea of just the tension, the pain, uh, listen to this interview. George, Flo George Floyd's brother speaking this morning to Alison Camerata on New Day broke down as he recounted the pain that the family's going through. I'm never going to give my brother back. <laughs> I'm sorry. We need justice. We need justice. Yeah. Those four officers need to be arrested. They executed my brother in broad daylight. People had to film that. People had to see that. People pleaded for his life. Kids, I know they were out there seeing this. Nobody wanted to witness that. Nobody. Nobody should have to witness that. And I understand and I see why a lot of people are doing a lot of different things around the world. I don't want them to lash out like that, but I can't stop people right now because they have pain. They have the same pain that I feel. I want everything to be peaceful, but I can't make everybody be peaceful. I can't. It's, it's hard. The brother speaking this morning. Time for us to take a momentary break. 
when we come back. There are angry protests in Spain over Nissan's decision to close a car plant there and the future of Hong Kong uh, report, a special report coming up. The first move, the market opens in about eight minutes from now. Uh, the going to be a, a perhaps a split sort of opening with the broader and the Dow, uh, the, the blue chips going higher. But the Nasdaq is, uh, is, is off just a tad. There's a thousand and one reasons for that. We'll discuss them in a moment. The U.S. jobs report, of course, is also one of them. That's another 2.1 million people in the United States have filed for jobless benefit. It takes the total to more than 40 million since the beginning of the crisis in mid-March. And Boeing's announced almost 7,000 layoffs. Uh, the company had said it was going to be doing this. EasyJet in the UK and Europe is going to cut 30% of its workforce. It hopes to start flying again in mid-June. And American Airlines is cutting 30% in this case of its management and support teams. All the airlines basically saying they have no need for, those, for the large number of staff that they've got for the flying they expect to do between now and the recovery in 2023. In Spain, there have been protests after Nissan announced that it was to close its plant in Barcelona. It's part of deep cost-cutting across the board from Nissan, as Kaori and Joji reports from Tokyo. Nissan is shuttering its Barcelona plant and leaving the South Korean market as it retrenches into survival mode after posting its biggest net loss in 20 years. It's cutting capacity by 20 percent and shaving billions of dollars in cost. And the architect of the turnaround plan, COO Ashwani Gupta, tells me years of global expansion were a mistake. Number one, excessive fixed cost. Number two, uh, uh, the coronavirus, uh, sorry, COVID, uh, COVID impact. And number three, uh, the financial impairment. And that's why we have these net losses. Nissan's profits plunged after the arrest of Carlos Ghosn in 2018, and the entire industry was plunged into uncertainty after COVID-19. The world's biggest car markets, China, the U.S., and Japan, are all starting to slowly reopen. But Nissan says global demand in the near term could be off by 20 percent. When we look at United States, we anticipate that United, United States TIV will be 12 million, which is four, four to five million less than last year. More job cuts and plant closures could be on the cards when its alliance partner, Renault, announces its restructuring measures on Friday. From Tokyo, I'm Cody and Joji. More than 2 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits in the last week, taking the total to more than 40 million. That much we know so far. It's getting a significant number of those jobs back and how that actually happens. That's going to be uh, the trick in all of this. And that means getting Americans spending again. According to a survey by the Consumer Brands Association, 47% are in favour of getting things moving, again reopening. 38% want to remain closed to protect public health. 68% say the US will be back to normal in the next six months. Jeff Freeman is with me, the President and CEO of the Consumer Brands Association. I'm guessing, Jeff, that you, good morning first, I'm guessing that you don't believe that uh, the US will be back to normal per se by six months. What do you think it will look like by the time we get to the of the year. 
Well, good morning, Richard. It's great to be with you. I think our members realize that change is here for the long haul. Uh, we're looking at the, the remainder of this year well into 2021. I've got members talking about uh, disruption well into 2022. So we do expect this to be the new normal. We expect demand to be up uh, quite significantly. Uh, we expect inventories, obviously, to struggle to get back to where they were. Um, and we expect our need as an industry to never be greater than it is right now, uh, to, to deliver to the American consumer, provide them with the products they need. Uh, the responsibility that we share as an industry is extraordinarily high right now, and we expect that to continue. The, the interesting part about this, of course, is that the jobless numbers will have disproportionately come from your members. I mean, the employees of your members, retailing and the like, have, have borne the brunt, um, which, which argues, do you believe you can reopen on a large scale safely. Now you've had real experience because you helped design the whole TSA pre-check and the, 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 the Travel Promotion Act and all of that sort of stuff. So you're well aware of how you can do things safely in on a large grand scale. Well, we certainly did help the travel industry recover after 9-11, and we're going to need to see a similar recovery across our economy uh, after this situation. I think first and foremost, it's important to point out that the consumer packaged goods industry has actually been adding jobs throughout this crisis, whether it's in the retail environments of grocery stores, Amazon now saying that it's going to take 125,000 of the jobs that it added and make those permanent, uh, or whether it's in the manufacturing facilities uh, within our membership. We've been adding jobs throughout this crisis, but certainly you can't add uh, the 40 million that have been lost. So we do have a problem here. We also have a problem that as we reopen, and on your airwaves, I've seen it this morning, cases are ticking up in many of these southeastern states and elsewhere around the country. That is going to be an issue. It is going to place greater stress on the manufacturing facilities as there's competition for personal protective equipment, as there is more coronavirus spreading in the general public, and as the public uh, wants to get out there more and more. We all know that. We all feel right. that tension ourselves. Our industry is investing in the materials it needs in the facilities, whether it's the thermal testing, whether it's the PPE, whether it's the contact tracing, all of those investments are going in. They're enormous investments to ensure the safety of the people on the front lines. But make no mistake, right. it's only going to get difficult in the months ahead. Okay, all, all that given, what do you need? I mean, what does the industry need? More help from government? The government's already had PPP, it's, which has just about run out. It's got uh, more unemployment benefit. Uh, it's the extra money, 600 so per month. What, the, a lot of the systems and loans and things that have been put in place are due to expire. What more do you want the administration to do? Our industry is not looking for financial assistance from the government. There are a lot of industries that may need that. Ours is not one of those. What we need from the federal government is greater clarity. Uh, in, this, in this rush to reopen, in this rush to empower all of the states to do what states do, we have right now a cacophony of different policies from state to state, locality to locality. What will allow one manufacturing facility to stay open is different than what will allow another one to stay open. It's that lack of clarity, the lack of consistency, the lack of specific policy that has the greatest risk to keep these facilities open mm. and keep the store shelves stocked. The more clarity we can get at a federal level, the more likely we are to see states and localities adopt those policies and create a more consistent environment nationwide. All right. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it.
We'll continue in just a moment. This is First Move. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Richard Quest. Trading is now underway on Wall Street, four, three or four minutes into the trading day. And, uh, well, one summer up and summer down, obviously, but uh, if you look at that, mixed. Has that exactly, you know, the open has reflected, to some extent, the pre-market, except we haven't seen the gains yet that we were expecting to see in the pre-market. Another 2.1 million people filed unemployment jobless benefits in the United States. It's continuing claims also fell last week. That's interesting. The continuing claims fell. That's those who have been claiming for several weeks. And that's because, of course, they're going back to work as the reopening gets underway. Twitter's down 4% the, after the president, U.S. president has threatened to punish social media. In Asia, Hong Kong's Hang Seng was definitely under pressure. China has now passed the new security measure that will apply in Hong Kong over the Hong Kong administration. And Hang Seng has fallen nearly 5% over the past week over these tensions. The U.S. is threatening uh, Hong Kong's special trading status after Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, described Beijing's actions as disastrous. In the first quarter of this year, the U.S. exported more than $6 billion in goods to Hong Kong. Less than a billion dollars came in the other way round. President, President Trump and Congress will decide what steps to take next. Sources say the president could take executive action as soon as uh, possible. Christy Liu Stout has more from Hong Kong. Richard, the declaration from America's top diplomat is a reminder that as this incredible tension between the U.S. and China rises, Hong Kong is caught right in the middle. No longer autonomous from China. That's how U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has branded Hong Kong as Beijing moves to tighten its grip on the territory. His declaration is more than words. It opens the door to significant U.S. action, including the possibility of revoking Hong Kong's special trade status. So what would it mean for Hong Kong? It would mean that the United States would treat Hong Kong the same as China for trade and other purposes. It would jeopardize billions of dollars worth of trade between the U.S. and Hong Kong. It would also dissuade people from investing here. It could also hurt China. The territory is a valuable east-west conduit for international trade and finance and the world. Uh, the U.S. has enough power economically and politically to make its regulations towards Hong Kong really impact the whole world. Like a German company could have uh, an operation in Hong Kong that helps funnel uh, goods and services through that city to the U.S. and suddenly that becomes impacted. So in that sense, it's a bigger ripple effect than simply two countries' relations. Pro-democracy protest leaders in the city welcome the move. According to the report by Secretary Pompeo, which just imply how the international community and the Western country realize how Hong Kong is the city without autonomy under the hardline rule of Beijing. Would revoking Hong Kong's trade status actually help in the battle for Hong Kong's autonomy? The national security law just takes away the last vestige of guaranteed protections. So to not do anything would be, you could argue, far worse. And I think that's why the protest leaders support the move, even though they must know that's gonna create quite a lot of pain for the people of Hong Kong.
Meanwhile, U.S. businesses in China are taking a wait-and-see approach, with the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong saying, American companies have already been evaluating the situation in Hong Kong due to the protests last year and other indicators. One thing is for certain, the declaration from Pompeo further strains the already fraught relationship between the U.S. and China, a relationship fractured by the trade war, the pandemic, and now the fate and future of this special administrative region. As U.S.-China tensions rise, more riot police were deployed across Hong Kong today. Tension is rising as lawmakers here debate a bill that would make mocking China's national anthem a crime, and Washington turns up the heat on Beijing. Richard. Thank you. Because it's not recording. Barely a day has gone by without us reporting the market up or down on the vagaries and fortunes and prospects of a coronavirus vaccine. Small companies have seen profits hugely rise, or at least prospective profits, if they are the first ones to come out with a successful answer and vaccine. And that's raised ethical problems over what exactly those profits mean. CNN's Anna Stewart reports. The race is on for a vaccine that can stop the spread of the coronavirus. Human trials are underway and a number of companies are preparing to test their vaccines on a large scale. Success could lead to big profits. There is a huge demand, right? Where there is demand, there is a potential profits, huge potential profits. Billions of people in need of these vaccines. Can you imagine, I mean, if just one company obtains a patent covering the main vaccine for these, it would be like more than a bingo or a lottery for such, for such a company. The world needs new medicines and vaccines, and pharmaceutical firms say development is an expensive process, one that requires intellectual property rights to offset the costs. Companies are going to be spending billions of dollars uh, to produce these vaccines, and you can't expect that they should simply absorb that. So there has to be some reasonable compensation, but they should not be in a circumstance where this turns into uh, a big boost to their bottom line. But how much of a boost is too big? So I'm not talking about uh, normal times. Normal times, of course, pharmaceutical companies should be free to litigate, to extract royalties, of course. But this is an unprecedented situation. Governments around the world have already given billions of dollars to research bodies and companies working on vaccine development. It's another argument against individual companies claiming a large vaccine profit. And it's a dilemma that big pharma firms are well aware of. We are competing against the virus, not against each other. Uh, we at, uh, at AstraZeneca are doing this as a, as a, for no, no profit. Uh, and I'm sure other, uh, other manufacturers will do the same. And we need several vaccines. So we're not really competing against uh, one another. We're really trying to bring several vaccines so we can vaccinate as many people around the world as possible. Uh, one vaccine will not be enough. And industry experts say that while vaccine development may be costly, prevention is almost always less expensive than a cure. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. In just a moment, we know that the SpaceX launch has now been postponed and hopefully will take place at the weekend. But the attention on SpaceX has renewed the interest in Virgin Galactic. When? Simple question for the CEO. When will you carry passengers? It'll be my first question when he returns after the break.
Blame it on the weather. Pure and simple. Well, that was the reason why yesterday SpaceX wasn't able to take off on their exciting venture carrying the first two U.S. NASA astronauts into the space, to the space station, uh, well, for, for the best part of nine years. It was delayed because of the, until the weekend because of thunderstorms in the region. And, well, the interesting thing is every mission raises the prospect of space tourism and just how close we're going to get to it. George Whiteside is with me, the CEO of Virgin Galactic is with me now. George, I promised you the first question. So those astronauts were delayed. Uh, you've had some pandemic delays, obviously, in, in the business. When do you hope to send Richard Branson up on a rocket and passengers thereafter? Well, hi, Richard. It's great to be with you. And, uh, you know, the, the great thing about our company is that we've already sent, uh, you know, a test passenger to space. You know, as, as you know, we flew to space in both 2018 and 2019 and minted five commercial astronauts, um, you know, with wings awarded by the FAA. And uh, so, you know, we've already sent uh, American astronauts to space from American soil and, and we're proud to do so. That said, we are hugely excited about the uh, SpaceX mission. I think it's a real milestone in uh, American space policy. As you know, I was chief of staff for NASA when uh, the commercial crew program really was kicked off in a, in a substantive way. And so for me, it's an exciting moment to see, uh, you know, 10 years later, um, this mission actually go up. You know, in terms of Richard, um, obviously, you know, I, I uh, always am a little cautious because I, wa I don't want to pressure the engineers to a specific schedule, but we're making... You know, very good progress. Um, obviously, we're trying to be very careful in the time of COVID. Uh, the team has done great by, uh, you know, getting the operational procedures ready to continue operations in our test flight program during the time of COVID. And as you know, we carried out a really important uh, test flight at the beginning of May, um, which was our first uh, spaceship flight above uh, Spaceport America. So we're making good progress. And, and I think that there's going to be a lot of exciting things this year. Right, so, George, uh, the commercialization of space, I was talking to the NASA administrator yesterday. For him, in many ways, the whole SpaceX thing is, is a culmination of a policy. As you look forward, and I understand you've got to get your first business underway, where do you see future opportunities for Galactic in space uh, above and beyond the, the sort of core mission of passengers into space? Well, Richard, as you say, you know, our number one priority is to get our uh, amazing Spaceship Two Unity into commercial service and then to start additional uh, spaceships into commercial service. We already have the next one well along in the manufacturing and a third one behind that. So, you know, getting that fleet into commercial service is our number one priority. That said, we are entering into a very exciting period for commercial exploration of space. And you know, uh, there's going to be a lot of activity in low Earth orbit. There may even be opportunities in lunar orbit, uh, even lunar surface operations. Now, I, I'm not making news. I'm not saying that, you know, we are or not going to be involved in any of those particular things. But I think we're entering into a time, you know, when you can imagine private space travelers spending, uh, you know, time not just on suborbital journeys, uh, but also in orbital space. The other thing that's very exciting to us, as you know, is, is high-speed travel, you know, and we think that we can evolve our vehicles into uh, vehicles that could take people between continents 
at a very rapid pace. And so that's something that we're really excited about as well. Let's talk about that because uh, you received some funding to help investigate the possibility of, uh, of faster travel. I don't see it. I'm sorry, George. I don't see, well, at least in my lifetime, but then, you know, I don't see that we will ever get back to supersonic or hypersonic or hotel travel, suborbital, through the environment while the climate issues remain. You know what? I think the climate issue is a key part. And, and really, that's the difference this time around is that, you know, we're not just trying to do high speed travel. We're trying to do sustainable high speed travel. And that's why we've assembled a really great team of engineers uh, to work on this issue. You know, the funny thing, though, is, Richard, 10 years ago when we started commercial uh, crew for NASA, people said the exact same thing. They said there's no chance that uh, commercial companies will be able to you know, implement uh, things. And, and here we are 10 years later with, with a program about to go. So I think, you know, modern tools, modern materials, and, uh, and, uh, and a lot of great hard work will generate uh, a high-speed uh, vehicle that is sustainable. And that is really uh, the, the core of whatever we're working on is, yeah. is that idea of long-term sustainability. George, it is good to see you, as always. Um, I'm watching, I'm waiting for that date. I think you're probably right. I've always been proved wrong, and therefore likely true on this occasion as well. George, it's great to see you. Thank you. Keep well. In just you a moment, uh, you, our next guest can transport you far further than George can, uh, transport you into a completely different world. We'll be talking next about Disney, because the world of fantasy is much greater than anywhere that you can go physically after the break. Disney is to reopen its Florida theme parks in July. It'll be a complicated operation. Uh, CNN's uh, well, uh, Frank Palotta is with me. Um, what's the CEO of Disney been telling you about the logistics for how they're going to do what, by any definition, will be a, a, a gargantuan task to open up these parks safely? Well, it was announced yesterday that Disney World is going to open its Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom parks on July 11th and then follow up a little bit later on July 15th with Hollywood Studios at Epcot. Now, I'm a Disney annual pass holder, and I was curious to actually ask the Disney CEO why it's now safe to go back. But Disney put forth some health guidelines, some including social distancing inside of the parks, the suspension of parades and fireworks and things that bring together crowds, and of course, limited capacity. But with limited capacity, that also kind of hurts the profitability, potentially, of the park. So I asked Bob Chapek about that, the Disney CEO, yesterday. We won't open up a park unless we can at least cover our variable cost, essentially, the cost to operate the park. So then beyond that, it becomes a question of, you know, trying to cover your overhead and uh, your capital uh, expenses that you have. And we'll make some baby steps towards that, but we, we won't be essentially losing money. Yeah, this is a really big, big, big investment in Disney. Disney's parks are a huge part of their company. In fact, when they did earnings earlier this year, they said that 58% uh, was hit by the parks being closed. That was a huge, huge hit to them. And at the same time, they also need to figure out how to do... Okay. Sorry about that. 
No, no, sorry, sorry. I, 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 the, the, that big hit, I mean, they've opened up Disneyland or the Disney Park in Asia. So they've got some experience of this. But the problem here is, you, it really does come down to, is it a case of if you build it, they will come? Is there a feeling, I mean, you've not only got to open it, you've got to get people to go there, and that means airlines and hotels. Of course they're well aware of this. I suspect they're expecting numbers to be on the low side. Yes, I, I think the thing that the better question to ask is not if people will come, but what is stopping people from coming? And I think two big things are going to be yeah. that you are required to wear masks inside of the park, both parks guests and cast member. That's going to be really hot in central Florida in the middle of summer. That might be tough. And the other thing which I talked about with Mr. Uh, with uh, Bob Chapek yesterday was about the distancing. He talked a little bit about how spacing out at the parks is going to work. So what we're doing is using the six-foot social distancing in order to set what the capacity should be. So our industrial engineers have been busy over the last few months trying to figure out what that would look like. And the capacity that we're going to open up with is actually slightly below where we really think we can reside with that six feet. So the thing is, is that Disney World is going to be back, but it's going to be very, very different than the Disney World we've known. Frank, thank you. Frank Pilotta, uh, talking. Before I leave you, I need to bring you... Uh, President Trump has just tweeted about the fact that there are now 100,000 COVID deaths in the United States. The president said we have reached a very sad milestone with the coronavirus pandemic deaths reaching 100,000. To all of the families and friends of those who have passed, I want to extend my heartfelt sympathy and love for everything that these great people stood for and represent. God be with you. Those are the comments from President Trump. He had come under some criticism that he had not responded yesterday when the 100,000 number was reached. Now, as the day moves on, there'll be the questions of what he says publicly besides that tweet in any of his public events. And, of course, it will renew the controversy over the fact the president does not and will not, it seems, wear a mask. That is First Move for this morning. I'm Richard Crest. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll be back with Christmas Business in a few hours from now. Whatever you're up to between now and then, I hope it's profitable. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.